If you have kids or pets, you know stains and odors in your carpet and upholstery are inevitable. But the experts at ChemDry can help. ChemDry removes odors and stubborn stains by sending millions of carbonating bubbles deep within your carpet. ChemDry lifts dirt, urine, and stains to the surface to then be extracted away, giving you a cleaner and healthier home. Call 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com to connect with your local ChemDry and learn about special offers in your area. That's 1-800-CHEMDRY or visit ChemDry.com today. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Oh my God, the charcoal mess. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. This on? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. Evolution does some pretty funky things. We can teach kids and they get it. There's chemistry in here. There's biology in here. It's in whiskey. It's in ice cream. It's in who you fall in love with. That's the recipe for success. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye. This is the show where science rules. It's a call-in show. If you want to be on the show, and I hope you do, leave us a voicemail at 201-472-0785 or go to askbillnye.com, your homepage, askbillnye.com. And I am joined once again by science writer, editor, and dear friend, Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey. Bill, 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 Bill. So good to be here. Uh, and you know, Bill, when we talk to our guests on this show, so often they end up telling us stories about the tremendous hard work and the tenacity that it took for them to get to where they are. So I'm excited today to have someone on Science Rules who is herself an expert in tenacity. An expert in tenacity? That's right, my friends. Our guest today is Angela Duckworth, psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania and author of the very popular book, Grit. The Power of Passion and Perseverance. She is also the co-host of the podcast, No Stupid Questions. No Stupid Questions. Well. Yeah, I was uh, thinking you you might take issue with that, yeah, right? Yes. You're like, you I can think it with you. I mean, Bill is the host. You're going to be limited there. Challenge accepted. <laughs> yeah, Greetings, right. Dr. Duckworth. Welcome to Science Rules. May I call you Angela? You may. if Only if I'm able to call you Bill and Corey. Yes, please. Please. But, please. Right. So let's start with grit. You know, I'm a mechanical engineer. Grit to me is what we use to grind things. To you know, uh, we, don't, we don't want grit <laughs> in our screw threads. No, grit is bad, right? In your line of work, I actually wonder whether the word, as I use it as a psychologist, um, comes from actually the the meaning of like you know particulate matter. Or I don't know where the word grit comes from originally, but when I say grit, I mean the combination of passion and perseverance, especially for for long-term, um, personally meaningful goals. So sticking with things for, you know, years even, um, if you're talking about scientists, decades maybe, uh, and working really hard at it, but also loving what you're doing. So I think here's the confluence. Uh, grit, whatever you use for grit to grind on purpose, is very hard. The material is very hard. Mm. It's very tough. 
But, oh, well, maybe that's but, where it comes from. Well, yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I'm an expert. Oh, you have no <laughs> doubt. Okay. Well, okay. I'd be, I won't go to shocked, but quite surprised if that's not where the word came from. And by the okay, way, here's so, an interesting question before we get started. How does something that's not as hard get worn out? For example, why does a street get worn out with tires that are much softer? It's a deep philosophical question in material science. You're leaving this as a challenge for the students? No, it's, it is, there's a reason. It's cool. But with that said, you study this toughness in people, right? This ability to stick with it, to be gritty. Yeah, means stamina. To, yeah, stamina. And it goes on in some cases, as you pointed out, for years. But I think a lot of people, when we hear that's, that person's got a lot of grit, that person is gritty, we associate it with being self-made, with working hard, with uh, pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. But that's not quite what you mean, is it? You know, I regret that connotation. I'm not saying that it's not true. So I, I, I appreciate you pointing it out. But, you know, people ask me like, oh, if you believe in grit, then you probably don't believe in equalizing opportunity or like, you know, creating structural changes so that like all people can go to college. I'm like, no, 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 no. Of course I do. I I Googled once, where, where does this expression pulling yourself up by your bootstraps come from? And its original use was to show that you couldn't do that. That, right? Like kids and adults cannot pull themselves up by their bootstraps. It's physically impossible. So when I say that I admire individuals who have pursued something very hard um, for a long time with real devotion, it's it's not to say that, you know, opportunity doesn't matter or even that like luck doesn't matter. It's in particular to say that, that when we see something great, we sometimes think it was just like, oh, that person's really talented or they're a genius or it's easy for them. And what's invisible so often are the, the thousands of hours of work and the many setbacks that, you know, beset them on the way. So Angela, you're describing thousands of hours and years and decades of effort. How do you study something like that? That, that just seems like something that inherently is, does not lend itself well to a study survey it, or a lab study. study. It scientifically, right? Yes. Yeah, and it is hard. And I won't say that my research has, you know, um, the quality of perfection about it. But for example, I created this questionnaire called the grit scale that has items on it, like, you know, I finish whatever I begin, um, and other items about like pursuing goals that take, you know, years and years of work, um, and not being waylaid by, by setbacks. And I give this questionnaire about your dispositional grit to, for example, cadets at West Point or competitors in the United States National Spelling Bee. And then I follow these individuals, you know, at West Point, follow them for four years. In the Spelling Bee, you follow them over the course of the following year to see, you know, who wins um, at the final competition. And this isn't following people over decades, which would absolutely be the ideal. But I do find that gritty individuals tend to stick with things for longer. They don't drop out, for example, of West Point as often or as soon as their less gritty peers. And they work a lot harder. So at the Spelling Bee, for example, the girls and boys who score higher in grit tend to do the hardest kind of practice, deliberate practice, um, more so. And that ends up, you know, being one of the reasons why those those kids are more successful in the spelling bee. You know, we had we had the spelling bee winners. We had all eight winners on uh, last season. The Octachamps. Yeah, the Octachamps. <laughs> they they work out or whatever the expression is, practice all weekend, 13 yeah. hours or some crazy thing. And, and seven they, days a week too, right? Yeah, like not seven to days a the, week. Yeah, and the they weekdays. recognize French words, they recognize Russian words, they recognize Scandinavian words. 
First Nations words, they can just pick them out uh, because of the years, uh, the years, the hours and hours and hours they put in, right? You know, the, the children, and they really are, right? Because they're, I guess, 7 to 14 years old. I think you age out um, of the spelling bee after that. I mean, they really are children. Uh, I'm not saying that, in general, parents should worry that their 7-year-olds aren't working on weekends, you know, for some passionate purpose. But, but I do think, in general, the take-home message is, that, you know, to be excellent at something is really something you earn. Um, and, and you can't do it by skipping around and doing lots of different things. In childhood, it's really important to remind parents that kids have to explore their interests. So it's unusual to find a kid who's very young, who knows that they want to stick with something for years. But eventually, and I think, you know, by middle adulthood, I hope, you know, you've found something that you like enough to, you know, want to get better at it. Grit, as you're defining it, is this a teachable skill? Is this a is this a cultivatable, or is it a talent you're born with? Is grit something you're born with? Are you describing a, sort of an, an innate personality quality, or are you describing something that can be can be taught or cultivated? Well, well, first of all, I'll say that when we say the word grit, and then we say the word talent, and you give people the question, you know, which of these can you really cultivate? And which of these is innate? You know, most people would say like talent you're born with, um, but you can learn to be gritty, right? Um, I don't think that's actually necessarily true. Scientifically speaking, when you look at genetics, and, you know, look at measures of intelligence or personality, I, I don't think it's, you know, a clear picture that, your intellectual ability is innate and your effort and your motivation are, are nature. It's not that simple, but I do think you can cultivate in a very intentional way. Like say you're listening to this and you're like, you know what? I wish, I just wish that I had a little more passion for what I'm doing and that I were a little more persevering. I wish I were more resilient. I wish I did more, you know, practice. Um, I think you could learn to be grittier. Um, and my philosophy is that if you can understand the people that you admire, then you can um, maybe reverse engineer a little bit what their mindsets and their habits are. And then, yeah, you can be a little bit more like them. Well, the people I always think about are competitive athletes and mm. where one is focused on that other person who's just as good or can I beat her? Can I be as good as she is? Can I beat him? You know, I, they talk about everybody in basketball, Michael Jordan, Scotty Pitt, but, you know, they go on and on about, no. Well, I think, like, competitiveness is maybe um, a little bit different from grit because, for example, I've studied people who are not competitive athletes, but they're, for example, artists, right? And I don't think a lot of artists are like, I'm just trying to beat the other artists. They have a different drive. It may not be competition per se. It may be, you know, the drive to create, like the drive to express. But certainly there is drive, right? The, the, maybe what's the more of the common denominator is desire for excellence. And I do know many competitive athletes, they love having a rival because it's an engine to drive them to be a more excellent individual themselves. And so now, Bill, you're you're reminding me of something because this is not only a call-in show, but also an email-in show. An email-in show. You got an one. An email-in show. And uh, we got a question from Isabel, who is a business student at CU Boulder. People say that the best form of revenge is success. Is revenge an effective motive for success? 
Interesting. Um, okay. Well, one thing that I will say of the high achievers that I've studied is that there's not one motive that you could say like, oh, this is why they, you know, they're so driven. You know, I do think for some people there is a desire to, I don't know if it's revenge, but to prove other people wrong, like a kind of underdog mentality. Um, I have a little bit of that myself. When you tell me that I can't do something, my motivation doubles, if not triples, uh, almost reflexively, right? Um, and so that's one drive, but other people have other, you know, reasons why they work so hard. You know, some people um, just don't have anything nearly as gratifying in their life as their work. And so there's no real temptation for them that, you know, that's what they wake up and they want to do. Okay. Not to get too far afield here, but there's a whole thing now. Uh, there's a phrase thrown around success porn. Where what? Yeah. I have never heard that phrase. <laughs> oh, stick with us. So, yeah, well, you're you, doing... you've, clear, you've clearly not been on the success porn part of the internet. I guess not. I don't so even want to post... Google it. I'm well, scared. Well, you, you know what it is. You put on Facebook all your accomplishments and you uh, talk uh, about we your to, new We used job. to call it bragging. Bragging? Yeah. I get yes. exactly curious. Yes. But, but furthermore, I claim it's what every or many, many holiday letters are. This year, oh, son I Steve talk about got that. his third PhD and ran 17 marathons. I hate those holiday letters, <laughs> those resume holiday cards. Like, this is my one time out of 365 days that I get to tell you about all of the wonderful things that my children did. Like, I think they're gross. Well, uh, so many people have made fun of them over the years, but all I was doing there was saying this idea is not new. The idea of revenge <laughs> motivating you or bragging ah, motivating you is not a new thing. But yeah, well, that might make me feel better the next time I get one of those cards. I might think, oh, maybe they're just underdogs. Like, they just want to show everybody that they ended up successful or something. But they're, they're, but, uh, is it evidence of grit or lack of grit, that insecurity? I, Oh, gosh. You know, like I said, I don't think every gritty person is driven by a fear of failure or a need to prove other people wrong. But I do think there are some for whom that that is a big source of their uh, of their drive. I don't I don't think you can neatly say that there's ever like one thing that like accounts for everybody's story because um, people get to where they are in different ways. What, what they do have in common, though, the gritty individuals that I study is what they do. Right. So regardless of what their underlying motivation, you know, these individuals they practice um, they practice their weaknesses and I'm sorry to be the one to share the news if I am the one but Anders Ericsson who gave us the idea of thousands of hours of deliberate practice to become an expert actually um, passed away his uh, you know, monumental research was about like how people do become better at what they do. And, and in our joint work together, we found that gritty individuals do more of this really effortful, um, not so fun in the moment, usually um, practice. So this gets into the, the question of talent versus hard work. I say all the time, you know, uh, you could give me a liter of steroids every day. I could not hit a home run in the major leagues. That's not going to happen. Because I just, of talent. Yeah, I just don't, don't have it. Yeah. On the other hand, Bill, you, you taught me this, what matters is not initiative, but finishative of uh, seeing things through. <gasps> I love of, yeah. that. Finitiative? That's, what? Uh, so, oh my gosh, I love that so much. So Ned, my father, Ned and I, was all about finitiative. Initiative is easy to come by. Finitive is uh, something else. In what context would he talk about this? Like, what sort of stories do you have to share about that? What context would he not talk about it? 
Was he gritty? Well, the guy lived through four years of prisoner war camp, sent three kids to college. I don't know. When you give advice to young people and they have questions about whether they're going to succeed, if you had to give a a little lecture on talent or finitive or what, like, what do you say to them? When I do commencement speeches, which is quite an honor or convocation speech, I just tell everybody, just get started. Just go do something and you'll figure out, you'll find your way. I mean, that's, there's, I didn't have a plan. I'm going to have a podcast someday. And man, if I can get Dr. Angela Duckworth. Yes. <laughs> but this is the yeah, end point. It's been a long con oh, getting yeah. to this but day. There's something to it. It's, I mean, that you just get started and you see what happens and that whether or not you're gritty, it depends what you want, what you're passionate about. I tell everybody, just follow your passion. Because that's what you're going to want to do. What if they don't have do. one, though? So many young people tell me that they would follow it if they had one. Then, then what do you say? Oh, I say, come on. They're passionate about something. Right. I, when, when people say they're not passionate, I, I don't believe it. Yeah. And I don't know, Angela, you've studied this. Do you find people who genuinely have no passion, not people who are clinically depressed, but people who just are sort of lost and directionless? I think everyone has interests, but... I would say that one of the great myths about passion is that, you know, it's an either or you have it or you don't have it. And then you have to go find it. If you lost it, like it could have rolled under the couch. Like I think passions develop. So I think you could have immature interests. Like somebody could be like, oh, yeah, I'm kind of just in chemistry. Yeah, kind of. Right. And and then and then really to become more deeply interested in chemistry, you have to actually know something about chemistry. And and so I think there's a process that could take frankly, you know, years, and it's probably not a very linear process. Like you don't know what's going to happen and you might shift and become sort of more engaged in something else. So I, I agree with you, Bill, that like, just get started. And I agree with you, Corey, that like people do have interests, but I, I I do think it can take a long time for, for like, I'm really, really, really passionate about psychology. But if you asked me when you just started out in your very first year of graduate school, were you this passionate about psychology? I, I think I've become more passionate since I started. Stick around for more science rules after this. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Science Rules is back. You have a long-term project called Behavior Change for Good. So you clearly think that behavior change is possible. How do you do it? How do you yeah, encourage people to change? You can see the underlying theme. I pretty much, you know, believe everything is changeable. Uh, and secretly, I even think talent is changeable, um, you know, in the ways that, you know, may not be obvious at first. So anyway, so yeah, I think everything can change. And the question is like, how do you do it? With Behavior Change for Good, that um, project is about self-control 
problems that we all have. Like, I want to exercise more. I want to eat better. We have a study coming up on flu vaccine because fewer than half of American adults get the flu shot, even though the CDC has been recommending it since 2010. So all these things that we sort of should do and maybe don't get around to doing, I want to study like how we can do them more. And some of the things that we do and we regret, like, you know, eating the wrong things, I want to see how we can get people to do that less. Um, So how do you do that? How do you study this scientifically? Well, for example, we ran this big study at gyms. We um, partnered with a very large national gym chain, and we randomly assigned the members of this gym chain to different conditions. And in these different conditions, they saw different text messages and they got, you know, different emails and they were encouraged to, for example, like frame exercise in their heads as something different in one condition than another. Um, and one of the well, things what, that we what are the difference? What yeah. are the differences? This is good for you. This is bad for you. You're a good person. Well, like, You're for a example, bad person. Um, well, we didn't tell anybody they were bad people, but, but a lot of people frame going to the gym as like a a chore that like they have to check off their list and it's good for them in the long run. Other people, when they go to the gym, they think of it as fun. They're like, oh gosh, this is the one hour of the day where I get to go to the gym and I'm going to have fun there. So, um, that was one of the experiments that that were run among many, many others. Um, And one thing we learned, this is very sobering for me as a scientist, is that really very few of these interventions had any long-term impact. So, Corey, you're right. It's called behavior change for good, um, meaning good for you, good for society, but also meaning, you know, in some semi-permanent way. Um, And we've been finding that that's very, very hard. We're not done yet, right? We're not giving up, but it's very hard to change behavior, um, as you, you probably know from personal experience. Well, what works short term? I mean, what, what are the things that seem most promising or what, what are the directions that you want to kind of keep pushing on? Okay, so here are some take-homes that I think actually are pretty intuitive but worth reminding ourselves about. One is that we um, very often fail to make a plan. So for example, if I say, you know what, I really have to get around to sending a thank you note to my dean for being so supportive. And I don't say, you know, I'm going to do it uh, Friday at six o'clock, because that's like the end of my last meeting. And I'm going to do it in my office and and I'm going to do it with this stationery. If I just say, yeah, I got to get around to writing a thank you note, um, and don't make a plan. I'm very unlikely to do so. So, so plans with very specific times, places, details, like you also, you know, can benefit from visualizing like exactly what you're going to do. So that's one thing. The second thing is a lot of times we don't do things just because we forget, you know, it's like at the beginning of the pandemic, I I was like, I'm going to walk 10,000 steps every day so that I don't turn into a lump, right? And uh, what happened was I forgot. You know, I would forget. It would just be like the end of the day. So then I had to like put in reminders. And that was one of the things, by the way, that worked in our study. So having reminders like, oh, it's time for you to go to the gym. Like you said you wanted to go at four o'clock. Here's your reminder at 3.15. And the final thing um, that I would recommend widely is, you know, you have to find ways to make things uh, rewarding in a more immediate way. A lot of people think of delay of gratification and self-control as forestalling um, fun and pleasure for a later day. Like, I'm going to go to the gym now so I can live 10 minutes longer, you know, 20 years from now. But really what you want to do is think of being at the gym as fun. Have fun when you're at the gym. Give yourself a pat on the back. Maybe even, like, reward yourself with 45 minutes of watching trashy TV while you're on the treadmill. So um, that's a really non-intuitive thing, I think, to, to make 
delay of gratification, not delay it at all, but in fact, make it immediate. My understanding of your work, uh, Angela, is you want to address huge things. You want to address something like systemic racism or climate change. Or how to respond intelligently to a pandemic. Yeah, no, I I have both um, research interests. When I study grit, you know, this devotion to to goals of, you know, really, you know, they're usually identity relevant too. They're not like, oh yeah, whatever. I guess I could pursue this for decades. It's really like this is who I am. This is this is what I was meant to be doing. That is really about the big goals. Um, but I am also interested in small goals because like you and me, you know, everyone has to like floss their teeth and get around to getting a flu shot and wear a face mask and go to the gym when the gyms are open again. So I'm interested in both kinds of goals. I guess what fascinates me about human nature is just how goal driven we are, big goals and little goals. Like, you know, human beings are so uh, purposeful. And even when you watch young children play, like making a sandcastle or building a fort, like that's also goal driven, right? I just think we're just purposeful animals. Well, if you weren't purposeful animal, you would get outcompeted by the purposeful tribe members. Competitor. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it could be adaptive. You're saying it's not just adaptive, it's inherent. Well, probably both, one because of the other, right? Like, you know, we have as a species um, evolved to uh, be capable of envisioning a desired future state. That is actually, by the way, the technical definition in psychological science for a goal. Like, what is a goal? A desired future state. It can be like social justice, a really long-term goal, hopefully not that long-term, but, you know, a big goal. But it can be a very simple, concrete, proximal goal, like I have a goal to get a cup of coffee, right? So other animals probably have some version of goals, but not the way that human beings do, not as complex and elaborate um, as as we have. Uh, well, you say that, but so much of what people do is about meeting other people to make more people. I mean, there's so many, so but that's many. That's a goal, though. Isn't that's that a goal? What, yeah, it is. Yeah, that's a very desired future state for a lot of people. But right? that's what we share with just about any species you could ever uh, come across. But but a lot of other animals do it on instinct, right? So like when squirrels bury acorns, or when you know a lot of animals procreate in whatever way they they do. It's a little less of a, you know, hey, I have this desired future state and it's going to take me like 14 years or 14 days. Like, how do I get there? It's, it's more that they're doing um, what they're doing reflexively. Um, and I think that's what makes human cognition so interesting, that we have desired future states, but rather than just pursuing them in a very simple, reflexive, instinctive way, we're strategizing. You know, we have tactics. You know, we, we double back. We regroup. You know, we ask for our best friend's advice, you know, that that's, that's, I think, pretty uniquely human. So this brings me back to the original thing we were talking about, grit, this whole concept of how you become more tenacious in pursuing those goals. Is your thinking that if you can cultivate grit on a small scale, that this is sort of an additive process that, that, you know, these, these sort of larger changes that you want to make, that if you can sort of help get yourself through your 
immediate goal-oriented things, then you can also do a little better at, you know, you can set up a fundraiser, you can go to a rally, you can uh, you can start a GoFundMe. Is it incremental that way? Well, okay, so my answer is yes and no. First, I'll give you the yes. I do think that um, a, a big part of, of staying gritty about a long-term goal is um, feeling confident, right? Like a lot of people give up on long-term goals because at some point they just don't think they're possible. So these small wins, you know, you set up a GoFundMe. Oh my gosh, you actually raised $50 in your GoFundMe. That gives you confidence. And then you go do something else and you build confidence further. So that's my yes answer, which is I do think small victories can can fuel you for the long term. But my no answer is that if you ask me, like, you know, what's the best predictor psychologically of, you know, getting like good grades when you're in seventh grade or like, you know, finishing a to-do list, it's it's not necessarily grit. It's probably more like conscientiousness or self-control, which are related, but they're different. And I think you want to keep them separate. You know, it's not the same thing to pursue something, you know, with dogged tenacity over years and that's not the same thing as doing your taxes and finishing your to-do list. Um, so th- there's some overlap there, but in some ways they're, they're useful to keep separate. All right. Well, what about systemic racism? Can society uh, have this grittiness? So I'll speak not as an expert, but, but in my personal experience, um, I think we need to have both grit, but also a certain amount of impatience, right? Like I think one thing that's changed very recently is, um, and I think it's a positive change, is that there is a kind of urgency, you know, like a kind of like, wait, 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 this cannot take years. Like we actually have to do something now and it can't be like a few people. It has to be in some sense, every person. So yeah, we need grit, but I don't think we want to like be okay with waiting around for like decades and decades for structural change to happen. But you could argue that it's been decades and decades building to this point. You could argue that it's centuries, but that doesn't mean we have to wait centuries for us to uh, get to a more just society, right? And, and and like I said, I'm not an expert, but I did do one random assignment experiment with a bunch of colleagues, uh, so I wasn't the lead, but we randomly assigned um, management consultants at a large global firm to different conditions. And one of the conditions was like a, a kind of anti-bias training to um, you know explain to them what having an unconscious bias toward gender groups, say women or 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 racial groups, right? Underrepresented um, minorities like black consultants, for example. And uh, we tried to explain that there's a science behind this and these implicit biases are pervasive and you may not be consciously uh, prejudiced or racist, but you might hold some of these, you know, very unhelpful um, and inaccurate uh, associations. So it lasted an hour. And I guess the um, finding is worth sharing just to be sobering about it. It did not have a resounding effect, uh, particularly on behavior. So, one of the conclusions that we drew from this study, we, and we published it in the Proceedings of the National Academy um, of Science, is that you know one-off diversity trainings, for example, uh, are not going to be the answer. I, I don't think that's going to be the panacea for uh, social justice. Well, uh, no. Anybody, anybody who's been through a corporate diversity training oh. can, could oh. have told could have told you <laughs> that those rolls, those right? things. Not only does it not produce positive outcomes, often it seems to produce negative outcomes and kind of uh, causing well, people to be more retrenched. No, no. That said, yeah. <laughs> that said, I'm looking around and you know these mass protests have produced these extraordinary changes. And you look at the polling on America's attitudes toward toward systemic racism or toward police reform, and there have been tremendous changes over the past few weeks. 
uh, as sort of the sense of social norms have changed. How do you cultivate that? Are there some things that just require mass movement before they're effective? You know, I can only speculate, right? Um, but I do think that you're exactly right, Corey, when you named social norms. So one thing that happened in the wake of the murder of George Floyd was that millions of people um, had visible, like unforgettable, graphic, um, h- horrible evidence of, you know, something that they probably didn't think was possible. And then what happened was that a lot of people then started saying things like Black Lives Matter um, or that they themselves had been either part of, you know, privy to a victim of, you know, some kind of aggression, you know, as a psychologist, I'll say, I think what happened was a shift in the social norms that happened very quickly. I'm guessing in part also because of social media. Um, And, and that has to have contributed um, to the speed at which things shifted, you know, as opposed to say, imagine this happened in the forties, right. Where there's no video footage, you know, there's no tweeting. I personally think that the seismic shift in awareness about things like race and equality is net positive. So we'll see how it goes. I mean, we're all, awareness has been raised. Let's see if we can make- Now what? Now we need action. Well, what do we need? What do we need? Finitiative. That's what we need. We need finitiative. We need behavior change for good. Yeah. Science Rules will be right back. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. You're listening to Science Rules. All right, now. Dr. Duckworth, you host a podcast, No Stupid Questions. Yes, with Stephen Dubner. All right, so first of all, really, there, there are no stupid questions? I was really? going to ask you <laughs> Well, look, you're famously curious. What do you think? Do you think there are stupid questions? What it makes a stupid question, I think, is when the person hasn't taken a moment to think about it, which we all mm, we all There could be do. like less reflective. Right. <laughs> and there are but, bad faith questions. There are questions where people aren't seriously yeah, looking right. for an answer. Right. Let me ask you a few questions about no stupid questions. It connects very strongly with your work, right? Yeah. I mean, what what it is, is really a conversation show where Stephen Dubner and I, and we got to be friends a few years ago, we ask each other one question. So I ask him a question, he asks me a question. And um, because of what he's interested in, uh, somebody who's been covering economics and behavioral science as a journalist, and what I'm interested in, which is behavioral science and, and psychology, we almost inevitably end up exploring, you know, basically questions of human nature. And I'm always thinking about research that's been done. And, and actually, frankly, he, he's often also thinking that way. We have a voicemail. This is a call-in show. Please, if you would, Harry, roll that digital recording. Hey, guys. I had a question about imposter syndrome and how legitimate is it and how can one counteract it? And that's it. Thank you. Imposter syndrome. 
So imposter syndrome refers to the feeling like you are somewhere that you kind of snuck into, like you were given an opportunity to go to a certain college, but you really don't belong there. Or uh, many people in my field feel like this, like the day you become a professor, it's like, oh my gosh, I will never succeed. And I can't believe everyone thinks I might succeed. Like there's no way you feel like an imposter. I I went and looked to see what the scientific literature said recently, actually, on this very topic. And there aren't as many academic articles anyway um, on it as you would think, right? There are many, many more mentions on the internet about feeling like you have imposter syndrome than there are articles. I think one um, thing that I could tie this question to that is a much more, I guess, substantial research literature, and, and by the way, I'm not saying imposter syndrome doesn't exist, I just think it's not studied as well as it should be, is um, this idea of pluralistic ignorance. Um, and this is the idea that, you know, you might think that everybody else thinks X, right? But they don't think everybody, like, so for example, what if you were a junior faculty member in a new chemistry department, psychology department, what have you, and you think everybody else is totally confident and has no insecurities. You're the only one who is going home at night, biting your nails, uh, waking up at two in the morning thinking like, there's no way I'm going to get tenure. But really everybody is like that, but we're all hiding it from each other. There's pluralistic ignorance. And I do think that's one of the (laughs) dynamics that can help if you know that so many people are insecure. You know, just this week, I'll tell you honestly, I'm working on this paper where I feel like I might not be able to finish it. It's so hard. And I think it's important for people who have achieved a certain level um, uh, of success to, to share with more junior people that like we all feel insecure and stupid and like, <laughs> oh my gosh. You this can is do not it, Angela. Well. Come on. <laughs> yeah, Go out yeah. there. You can do it. No, so that Bill and Corey will encourage you. Yes. Yes. No, but let me ask you this. You just used, you referred a couple times to a study. Studying this, yeah. studying that. One of the old things, I went into mechanical engineering because I like physics. And, you know, everybody says, I remember I also took a course in linguistics. And people made oh. reference continually to this thing called physics envy. Oh, yeah. Where there's hard sciences that there's a, a mathematical answer. that here it is. Okay. But in social science, uh, there is a long problem or thing to figure out in reproducibility. Somebody comes up with a study that comes up with this answer, and somebody else does study comes up with that answer, often based on small sample sizes or seemingly small sample sizes and seemingly subject to cherry picking of results. The reproducibility crisis in social science. Is it a crisis? Um, it's a crisis? Well, that's what I mean, it's called. People call it a crisis. I mean, do you, first, let's start. Do you consider it a crisis? I think it's been so widely acknowledged that there are problems when, you know, two small samples. Also, there's the file drawer effect, which you didn't mention. But, Bill, that's when, you know, you do a study and it doesn't work and you just put it in the file drawer. Uh, and so yes. all you see uh. is this, like, selection of, you know, positive findings. But we don't have all the negative findings that never saw the light of day. So I, I guess I, I don't know if I would use the word crisis only insofar as the field has embraced solutions that I think make us, you know, I think revolution might be a more positive way to, to phrase it because, for example, now it's common practice and I, I do this, I pre-register my studies. So it's like putting your hypotheses in a time capsule and then it's time date stamped. And that way you can't go back and say, well, actually what I was really uh-huh. looking for oh, that's is the cool. opposite yeah. relationship. You know, I'm not saying that everything's perfect now, but I do think there are a lot of reforms and innovations that are 
really, really helpful. We we do have physics envy, Bill, like we really do. And I, I hope that these will improve our results. We'll get to more truth and less noise. Of course, there's also cherry picking and and, and drawer hiding and those kinds of phenomena. That that happens in physics, too. That happens in in every field. There's a larger utility to some of these techniques you're talking about. Corey, can you hear that? That sounds like thunder. And if there's thunder, (laughs) by God, there's lightning. That's exactly right, Corey. Angela Duckworth, it's time for our lightning round. What is the stupidest question you've ever been asked? What is the stupidest And it can't question? be this one. I was going to say, um, Bill, no. Okay, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you the stupidest question I've ever asked. I was in a consulting interview. <laughs> I was trying to get a job at McKinsey, which is a big consulting firm, and um, they asked me to solve a, a little case study, a little, you know, like hypothetical, there's a travel agency, whatever. And um, the question I was supposed to solve was like calculate the estimated revenue. And here's the stupid question I asked. I was like, what is revenue. Oh. Like, it didn't know what it meant. So, uh, that that might be a stupid question. But it was asked in good faith. <laughs> yeah, well, I got the job, by the way. Wow. I don't know why they gave it to me. Because you were honest. Yeah, and or people, they were desperate. I well, know, everybody has other. insecurities, and then so you you didn't let I yours... I was. Uh, I was very confident about my ignorance. Uh, there you go. Okay, what is your favorite of your own studies? Hmm. My favorite of my own studies. Well, I really like this one paper. It's not even a study. It says like Newton came up with these laws, right? The mechanics, right? So like distance equals rate times time. And I used it as a metaphor for achievement. I said, if distance equals rate times time, then achievement equals skill times effort. And then I did a little, you know, I used to be a math teacher. So I was like, what's the first derivative of that? Anyway, I I extended the metaphor just about as far as it would go. Uh, I don't think it's ever going to be my most cited paper, but I really like it. The slope, the rate of change, of yep, I had rate of change in there, and then I had the rate of change of the rate yes. of change. I said oh, the, man. the rate of change is skill, and then I was like, the rate of change of the, the second derivative, uh, the acceleration, is talent. Can you go the other way? Can you also integrate and figure out like the total area of grit under your curve? Well, I did. There's integration, and so I found this um, old, old paper on Morse code operators. It was like over a century ago, and they actually had data from these Morse code operators who said how much they sent and received um, in terms of messages, like like per day. And so you had the rate, like at which they, which by the way, they got better. So their skill got better. You got faster and faster. How do you rate on your own grit scale? I think I'm about a 4.7 or something out of five, uh, which is to say that I think I am actually fairly gritty. She's pretty gritty, people. Okay, who's That's the gritty? That's self-reported, yeah. though. Why, you, sh- you could maybe disbelieve we me. Can, uh, we can exercise critical thinking and uh, yep. skepticism. You could ask somebody uh, else. Who's the grittiest person you've ever met? Because, you know, the Philadelphia Flyers mascot is gritty now. Okay, the gritty the mascot is not... Is not the grittiest. Role. Well, I haven't met the mascot for one thing. Um, yeah, he well, or maybe it's a she inside may in fact it, be. Ex- be I don't very even gritty. know what gritty. Yeah. And I had nothing to do with that mascot. I will have you know, which is fine. I didn't have to have anything to do with it. It just happens to be in my hometown of Philadelphia. Well, I can't give a short answer to that. There are so many gritty people. You can't ask me to pick among my, you know, my children, as it were. If you could have one new mental power, what would it be? Hmm. You know, in the myth of Pandora, where the one thing that she keeps in the box is the fairy that can tell the future. I never really understood that myth and why it would be such a bad thing to really know what was going to happen. But I don't know. I kind of want to open Pandora's box and know what the future is. You study human behavior. That's your thing. I do. Do you use your, your knowledge of human behavior 
on your own family. <laughs> of course. Absolutely. Oh, I just don't go. do it very well. That's a lightning um, answer. That's it. What's the yeah. coolest thing about a human mind? That we, it's never done changing. Oh, that is cool. Nice. What? Uh, speaking of, do brain training games work? Do they really work? I think the benefits have not been shown to generalize. So you can improve your performance on a game. The, the trick is, does that actually change anything else that you do? And I don't think the data are, are there yet that the benefits generalize. Oh, uh, there you go. What is the most misunderstood part of your research? Uh, the most misunderstood part of my research is that if you think grit is important, that you don't think that context and opportunity matter also. But if you think grit is important, then your belief that context and opportunity matter should go up. Aha. Uh-huh. So, so grit does not make you a, a radical libertarian. No, I'm not a libertarian. I do believe in public education and, um, you know. In 30 seconds or less. How can anyone make his or her mind work better? Mm, be in a good mood. Generally, when we're you know feeling secure and happy, we're clearer and, well, we're sort of more creative anyway in our thinking. Oh, there you go. Before we move on, can I just give you briefly the answer? Why do streets wear out when the only thing that rubs on them is soft tires? Yeah, why is that? The answer is roughly grit. The little particles that get stuck between the tire and the street harden. And there's an expression in material science, they work harden. You do work on them and they get harder. So the grit that gets between the shoe and the stairway, between the tire and the street, between the nail file and your nail, that grit is what wears out the nail file. Wow. That all right. was mind-blowing. Poetic, <laughs> br- even. Bill, you brought it all home, oh, man. I did my best. <laughs> I am so impressed. It's, uh, wow. it's an old, hilarious material science turn of phrase. But you guys, this has been just a delight. Dr. Duckworth, Angela, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. I it's really thank appreciate you. it. So everybody, check out her book, Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. And perhaps in the shorter term, check out her podcast, No Stupid Questions. Dr. Duckworth is a psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania and author of the book and host of the podcast. So remember, everyone, when it comes to the gritty, successful part of the universe, Corey, science science rules. If you like Science Rules, and of course I hope you do, please take a moment to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us learn about who likes the show and what you want to listen to. It helps us improve the show. So thank you. Be sure to look uh, at my socials, as the kids call them, for information on our upcoming guests. Not every week can we have Dr. Duckworth. Oh, come on, please. I'm at Bill Nye on everything. Meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, give us a call at 201-472-0785 or submit a question at askbillnye.com. Science Rules is produced by Harry Huggins and our beloved Corey S. Powell. I thank you. Casey Halford mixed this episode and composed our original theme. Josephine Martorana is our executive producer. Chris Bannon is the chief content officer of the CCO here at Stitcher. And at Stitcher, Corey, Science Rules. Stitcher.
Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.